Good morning. I guess I realized why I was invited today. My name is John, and you have to be John to speak from this pulpit this morning. <laughs> a couple of pieces to get us started. Grace Chapel has been part of our ministry for a couple of decades now. Our, our ministry parallels the Whittemores quite a bit. We were the next island over in the Philippines. We came to the home office. We're in other ministry now. But we value your support. We value your friendship. We value your prayer. And because of that, one of the things I, I do in churches that are, we have a relationship with is try to find out if there are other people who would like to receive our newsletter to pray for us. So Rachel actually has a clipboard that we're just literally going to pass. And just don't, if you've already signed up for it, don't sign up for it again. If you're not going to read and pray, please don't sign up for it. I'm not, I'm not complimented by you signing up and then just letting our newsletter go into your spam box or whatever. But if it's something you want to follow our ministry and be part of praying, please sign up. Just put your email address there. And then one other thing is just to help you follow a bit, I had prepared a, a little sheet. They were out there. If you were here in the first hour, they were in your, they're in your envelope. And there's still some of those envelopes around. Or else I know there's some sheets. In fact, I see some right back there. If you don't have one, you might want to grab one just to be able to follow me. Sometimes I'm not easy to follow. So in our neighborhood... We have a small group that's part of our church, and it's been very active. I'll actually tell you, tell you a little bit more about it later. But we've always wanted to figure out ways to have an impact. So we had an idea a bunch of years ago to go Christmas caroling. Kind of corny. <laughs> and so we got our little group together. I guess we've done it four or five years. We haven't done it the last couple of years. And just went caroling around several of the blocks. And all the neighbors, it's like, this is really corny, but it's kind of cool. I remember a little, little boy down the street when he was 12, 13 years old, opened up the door. He's got his, uh, it was cold. I remember being told, but he just had shorts on and barefoot. He just started dancing while we were Christmas caroling. But I remember one particular home we went to, I don't think we knew the couple yet, and an African-American couple comes out, and she actually was on oxygen, and it's cold, and she's in short sleeves, and, and she's very obese. And we started singing, and we weren't very good. And um, she just started crying. And, and I'm thinking, you need to get back in that house. <laughs> I don't want to have a little asthma attack right here. And then we sang one song. We're starting to walk away, and she calls us back and said, no, you sing another song. And they been, became very close friends of ours. They're a little bit older than us. They actually belong to a Muslim, a small Muslim group, African-American couple, probably in their mid-60s. She later had bariatric surgery, uh, the staple surgery. So we were able to visit her in the hospital and really befriend them. We did a lot of things with them. Started with Christmas caroling to open the door. <clears throat> small things. The world is small things. So we're talking today about engaging our world. And I have this, this phrase, the soft difference. And I want to I lead up to explain to you what I mean by that. But need to lay a little biblical landscape first. And so we're going to start in Genesis. So grab your Bibles, open up to Genesis chapter 1. And first words out of God's mouth to people. They got to be pretty important. Uh, God gives people a message here. And so our creation decree, we were created by design. There was very 
definite purpose as God created us and why he put us here. And so in Genesis chapter 1, not all of these, yeah, that's, the whole passage won't be on the screen. So you might want to look this one up. There's one other passage we'll look up later. Probably the rest of the stuff will be on the screen. But Genesis chapter 1, God's talking to himself or to one another here. In verse 26, familiar verses, but I want to read it, where God says, let us The Trinity make man in our image, after our likeness. This is the ground, the theological ground for what we're doing here in the world. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and all over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. This is the the Magna Carta. This is the the bottom line constitution for Christians. Being created in God's image dictates who we are and what we do. So I want to just expand it a bit. Most of this is review. Expand that a bit into three pieces of being in God's image. And the first one's the one I'll focus on the most, but that's where we're created in God's image with purpose. A purposeful image. To know what... uh, so it helps me. We have Bible studies with international students who have no biblical background. We start talking about the image of God. What in the world is it like to be created to look like God somehow? So we grapple with ways. So one of the, one of the ways it helps me to understand what it means to be created in the, uh, in the image of God is ways in which we're unlike God and not like our dog named Molly. So we got a dog named Molly. Give you a little something to... To look at. You live in the inner city, you want to have a dog. A pit, pit bull terrier is a really good dog to have. She's a great dog. We love Molly. She's not created in the image of God. So Molly doesn't wake up in the morning with a sense of purpose, a to-do list, a calendar, uh, an appreciation for art, a sense that I'm going somewhere in the world. I'm ruling and I'm trying to subject and subdue the animal world and manage the resources that are in the world. That's not part of Molly. I mean, she's just looking for breakfast and, and trying to find a squirrel every once in a while. She's not going somewhere in life. There's no sense of purpose. God, if you notice, when he created animals, he never talked to them. He only started talking when he created man because we're in his image and he had a purpose for us. He gave us some decrees. We, people, men and women, think in terms of what are the plans for the day? Where am I going? What am I trying to impact? What are my priorities? What's beautiful out there? How can I make things more beautiful? What are mundane things where I usually live? So from the very beginning, we were called to engage our world engage our culture. And so God said, verse 28 of chapter 1, be fruitful. He gives commands, directions for your purpose. Be fruitful and multiply. Okay? This is something you need to do, a purpose. Fill the earth. Govern it. That's huge. Be part of uh, working with this world, we'll expand on that. Uh, um, reign over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and all the animals that scurry along the ground. We're like God in that we have a purpose that we're trying to mold our world. We're trying to engage our culture and seek to make it friendly to the gospel, friendly to the kingdom, kingdom values. We're cultivators. So we're called to be cultivators of the earth as a representative of God because God is a cultivator. 
to use the resources of the universe to love and benefit other people, to harness them, to seek to show love, love for God, love for neighbor, our basic mandates, the purposeful decree of God to engage our culture, cultivators leads to the idea of culture. Cultivators, we're cultivating culture. We're cultivating what's around us. Now, culture is more than just simply a whole bunch of people that happen to live in the same place, and they kind of look alike, and they clump together, and they do some things similarly. So people in the U.S. live in a certain way, and people in France live in another way or whatever. Culture is more than that. The word originally came from the idea of cultivating the ground, tilling the ground, sowing seed, plowing it, and, and watering it, and getting it ready to grow, and part of God's uh, garden and developing that and constructing and producing fruit and producing beauty for the purpose of human flourishing. That's developing culture. That's making culture kingdom friendly. It's bringing order out of chaos because sin always leads to chaos and that's what Satan likes. God loves order. So we're God's representatives creating beauty and order on the behalf of all people. So cultivating society. Culture is the cultivation of the community of humans, where we live, our neighborhood, our workplace, our family, wherever. Ideally, culture is the way we organize, the way we seek to, to, to harness those resources for the benefit of the most people. That's our, that's our bottom line. That's the reason we're put here. And, and so obviously, it includes the gospel. So second passage to, to turn to where we see this from God's perspective, Psalm 65. So if, grab your Bible, turn there, a little bit of a longer passage. That is a passage that shows how much de God delights to cultivate the earth. All right, they're starting to, Mark, they're starting to get distracted by Molly now. You might want to come back to the previous side or something. I, I want them looking at me. You know, they've seen enough of Molly. Um, Psalm 65 shows us how much God delights in this material world. He's not just some ethereal spiritual God up in, the, up in heaven and he could care less for this material world and how much we should. So Psalm 65, starting verse 9, and look what it says about God here. God, you visit the earth and you water it and you greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water and you provide their grain for so you prepare it. He's involved. He's cultivating. You water its furrows abundantly. Settling its ridges, softening it with showers, blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. God is getting his hands dirty in the earth, cultivating it. So he wants us to rejoice in doing the same thing. He wants us to take joy in cultivating society, culture, seeking to live out expressions of God's kingdom in, in the gospel, gospel here. Use our minds, our ability to think and plan and create and manage the world and its resources to do it well, to do it on behalf of other people and to show, show love in that way. God uses us for that purpose. That's why he put us here, the environment both the environment as well as human resources as well. One writer named, by the name of Mark Knoll writes about this design in relation to creation. And he says, Who formed the world of nature, which provides the raw material for physical sciences? 
Who formed the universe of human interactions, which is the raw material of politics, economics, sociology, history? Who is the source of all harmony, form, and narrative pattern, which is the raw material for art, literature? Who is the source of the human mind, which is the raw material for philosophy and psychology? God did. God does. That's his organizing. That's his cultivating. Every part of life, we reflect and infuse God's value. So we think about that in, in, when we think about how to use money or how to, for what purpose? How can our, my money serve others? How do I conduct myself in my neighborhood? Am I engaged in my neighborhood, in my workplace? Am I a cultivator? How can I reflect God in the way I pursue my hobbies? Uh, does my job serve other per- people? What are my responsibilities to those I work with? Purpose, because God created us that way. <clears throat> that's our job. That's our mandate. That's our design. Now, there's a couple of other pieces of being created in the image of God. And I'm going to go over these a little bit more quickly. We, we're familiar with these. Not only are we created with purpose, but we're created with a sense of morality. We're created in God's moral image. And so God gave commands. Be fruitful. Fill the earth. There's the option of not obeying the command. So right there, there's a sense of good and evil, obedience and disobedience. Or, of course, God said of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. So morality right there is given to man. Molly does not sin. <laughs> Even that time she shot out in the, late at night. I was letting her out to go to the bathroom. He shot out, caught a possum, tore the hide off that possum, left it dead. That wasn't a sin. That's Molly being a dog. She has no conscience. She's not creating the moral image of God. I hope I didn't lose you on that one. I saved you from quite a few of the details. God gives no command to animals. Only people. People and angels. But only people. Does, is there a sense of right and wrong, an act of conscience, an ability to understand good and evil like God? And then a third piece of being created in God's image is we're creating in His image in a relational sense. Again, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Govern it. It implies people being in relationship to each other. People creating or sub-creating small people and other people and governing it together. And so like God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit and forever have lived in community, He designed us to be in community and to fulfill that purpose mandate together, to work together to engage the culture, just as God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit do. So there's an individual singular part of being created in the image of God, but there's a plural part. We are plural creating the image of God. Um, and that's, that's where we do everything in relationship to our community. That's where love comes in. Molly. We have a relationship with Molly. She's fond of us as long as I feed her and scratch behind her ears. Uh, she's obedient as long as I'm right there. If I'm not there, she's not, not too obedient. But she doesn't love us in the fullest, deep relationship. She doesn't share our hopes and dreams. We don't work together in the purposes and ambitions that we have in life. She's on a different plane. We can't relate in that deep. We don't cultivate the neighborhood together <laughs> as we do with other people. She's not creating the image of God that way, the way we are. That's for God and his people. A relational connection. Now, speaking to most of us here, this is something. I, there have been multiple 
test over the years done across the world that white American culture is the most individualistic culture in the world, by far. And I've, I've, been, I've been involved in some of the, or, or I've read a number of those studies, I've studied a lot of that. And so we can often miss and even read Scripture through very individualistic eyes. And if you, if you can somehow sometimes switch your gauge and try to look for community in Scripture, you'll be surprised by how much you see there. And so just a couple of, a couple of passages. You know, we're called the temple of the Holy Spirit two times in 1 Corinthians. One time Paul speaks of us individually, each of us as temples of the Holy Spirit. So I have the Holy Spirit living in me. But another time he speaks of us as a body altogether having the Holy Spirit in us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Likewise, in Ephesians chapter 4, we normally think of spiritual growth. I'm becoming like Jesus, uh, Christ-likeness. But in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul speaks of us as a body becoming like Jesus when he says, until we, we all attain to a mature person. So there's one sense in which someone walks in here and in the aggregate of all of us should see Jesus. In fact, a better picture of Jesus than that person would see in any single individual. He says, you grow, attain to a mature person, attaining to the measure of Christ's full stature. Together, corporately, we carry out God's great commission together. Purposeful, moral, relational. But there's that little thing in Ephesians, I mean, Genesis chapter 3, where we took a fall. So what, what happened to the image of God in us as a result of a fall, a fall away from God? When Eve, Adam and Eve, instead of being content with this decree God gave, here's your purpose, obey me, life works well, you'll love one another. And they said, ah, we like this plan better. God, we don't like your definition of life. We're going to create our own definition of life. Life means this. And so they walked out of the will of God, and they wanted to experience that. So when the woman, woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, the tree was to be desired to make one rise. She, why? She took of the fruit and ate it, gave it to her husband. He ate it. God had created them and invited them into this Trinity community kind of to, to, to dance, to join the dance. And they said, we want to dance our own steps. We want to dance our own way. And as a result, self-service replaced God's decree to be about serving other people, engaging the culture. So <clears throat> we see it on an individual level with Eve, and Adam, and Cain, Lamech, early in the Old Testament. We see that fall in a corporate level also with the flood, Tower of Babel, Sodom and Gomorrah, where whole communities became distorted image of God. We became like those, those uh, goofy mirrors when you go into the circus and they're just all distorted and you don't see the real you. We then, as a result of the fall, create a, a distorted image of God for those who see us individually as well as corporately. And so we're about trying to straighten those mirrors out. We're about trying to recreate that image in each of us individually and corporately to serve and impact our world carefully, uh, effectively. So just laying a little theological landscape and then going to get into some very practical ways of doing this. So this morning, I want to talk about ways that we want to run hard 
into the face of the ways in which those mirrors are distorted and the ways in which our culture has marred the image of God and really seek how we can look different. And we can take in our engagement into the culture what I want to call being a, a soft difference. Okay, two other pieces I need to, to lay out before that. Because as we think as Christians in the church in terms of engaging the world, typically there have been two different ways we've fallen in that. And the one way is like, shoot, the world is a mad, 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 mad world. It's fallen and going to hell. And so I don't want to be any part of it. And so we could call that a hard difference. I am going to be different. In fact, I'm going to be separate. And I'm going to pull out of the world. And the world's totally corrupt. And so I don't want to have any part of it because I might get corrupted by the world. And so there have been Christian traditions that have tended toward that ultra-separation way, uh, an outward uh, uh, it's like having a conscience that says, warning Will Robinson, stay away, stay back, and don't get yourself dirty. It's highly suspicious, and, and it's a tendency on the part of some Christians to just talk about how bad the world is and denigrate the world, and the world's going to pot, and it's so much worse. This is a hobby of old age. It's so much worse than it used to be, and the world used to be great. We want to make it great again. And so there's this tendency to, to pull away, and so a hard difference means withdrawal creating a Christian subculture and hanging around with other Christians and having, uh, having a Christian radio and Christian table channels and Christian music and Christian clubs. And none of those individually are wrong, but creating a world in, in and of ourselves and seeking to stay safe. And then we'll make these little gospel raids out into the world and do a little bit of ministry and come running back real quick to where it's safe. Do a little mission and come back in. Instead of really engaging in a deeply relational way, we, we have harvest parties instead of Halloween. I was reading, try to, try, to, try to invite some of our unbelieving friends to a harvest party on Halloween night. And I was reading one man who spoke of this. And he said, you know, inviting the neighborhood kids to a harvest party is laudable, but they likely don't have much interest in dressing up as biblical characters. And let's face it, they can get lots more candy walking around the neighborhood. So Christian alternatives, just trying to be different for different sake and different for safety's sake because it's hard to be out in the world. Detachment. That kind of detachment keeps us from being salt and light, fulfilling the purpose of cultivating the world. So that's one extreme, hard difference. <clears throat> Other extreme, you can imagine, what a wonderful world. No difference. I'm like the world. Uh, maybe Sunday when I'm hanging around with my Christian friends, you know, I have a certain certain way of acting, but then I have this other life when I'm out in the world. I don't, there's, there's not even much difference. A dualistic lifestyle. Um, I have a, a couple of slides from Tim Keller addresses this, where he talks about this dualistic, no difference type of mentality. And he says, dualistic Christians uncritically consume popular human culture. They think of their Christian walk is what they do on Sunday. The rest of the week, they have no ability to think worldviewishly <laughs> about what they are imbibing. The idolatrous aspects of popular culture, the tremendous emphasis on appearance, on sexuality, on material prosperity, on absolute individual freedom, etc., etc., are not viewed critically. The sources of the various powerful images are not recognized as idolatrous, and so the heart gets shaped by them. The values, this happens at a deep level. 
gives an example. For example, if you totally hate yourself because you're mildly overweight, it's because you've let the idolatrous images of a modern culture gain a foothold in your heart. That's becoming worldly, even that kind of value. I hope you catch what he, he's saying there. It's a non-discerning embrace of culture. It reflects a, a really shallow view of sin, that sin is just a bunch of deeds and acts. And someone in this, that type of posture will slowly adopt the world's values, the world's heart, the world's goals, the world's desires. <clears throat> so it's not total detachment. It's not total embrace. So let's talk about this third way. A way of engaging the world that I call a soft difference, and I didn't cre create the, the phrase. Maybe you identify with a piece of both, okay? Yeah, I, I, I need to be safe, and I need to be separate, and Scripture talks some about that. Yeah, I need to engage the world and be in relationship, and Scripture talks about that. So what's a balance, or what's a, another way that we can choose to, to run our lives and cultivate the world? We want to stay pure and make a difference and have an impact. So a number of years ago, I came across this phrase. It's a, a, from a, a, a theologian from Serbia by the name of Miroslav Volf. And he, he did a study in 1 Peter and the idea of us being strangers and aliens in the world. And he came up with this idea of having a soft difference, being different from the culture in moral values and what we really are trying to achieve, but softly, gently, winsomely, not in your face, not in a critical, harsh uh, sort of way, but in a way that's attractive, that's different, but a little bit crazy. I mean, that really is different. So let's, let's, let's talk about that way, that, that a little bit. Different. Maybe even crazy different. There's, there, are way, there are ways that we should be crazy different, not in our clothes, not what we eat, not necessarily in the music we listen to, but crazy different in deeper Areas Crazy different because we are foreigners and immigrants in this world. So foreigners look different. <laughs> uh, we lived in the Philippines for 10 years. No one ever mistook us for a Filipino. <laughs> uh, no matter how well we spoke, spoke the language. So we, will all, we, we would always be different. We accept that we're strangers and aliens in this world. So we accept the fact that we differ on those fundamental moral values, purpose values in life. Those values are, that are at stake. A good example of this is Paul when he was in Athens in, in Acts 17. And he went ahead and laid out for for these unbelievers, these pagans, some of the basic difference. He didn't try to soft sell the ways in which Christians are weird. And so we emphasize God's sovereign control, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the exclusiveness of Jesus, or other beliefs that we hold to that make us crazy different are things like there is joy in morality. I mean, that's weird. <laughs> There's joy in being moral and in, in, in being good. Uh, there are absolute truths in life. The vast majority of Americans do not believe. I think I read 75% of Americans do not believe there's such thing as absolute truths. That's crazy. You believe in the absolute truths? Yes, we believe in that. We hold on to that. God has revealed to us all that we need to have successful lives. That's crazy. We hold to those. That's where we want to be different. That's where we want to hold on to those deep values and think and live crazy different from the world. Different so that we do stand out on the value level, on the lifestyle level, on the things that we love, not just for the sake of being different, 
But for the sake of showcasing a gospel worldview, showcasing what a kingdom citizen lives like. Strangers and foreigners here, but kingdom citizens. So what should we look like as foreigners who are mirrors of God and not of this world? Let me just give you a few examples. And you won't probably won't agree with all these examples. There are things I've thought about a lot, and, and I, I feel like have some scriptural basis. But I hope this just gets you thinking. So crazy different in how we hold on to our stuff, possessions. And so conspicuous consumption is perhaps the number one god of American culture. Conspicuous consumption, having all the toys, owning everything I can. And hopefully a lot of people know that I own everything. And I own more than they do. This Kardashian displays of, of, uh, of possessions, of, of wealth in a flashy way. For Christians, why not choose a lifestyle that's below our means? That we could afford to live this level. We choose to live at this level for kingdom purposes. That's crazy that's weird. Nobody's going to understand out that. And encourage one another in the same way. Do this in community. Encourage one another. We see a fellow believer falling in what looks a little bit like conspicuous consumption materialism. Call him back. Brother, what, 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 are, you, what are you loving there? Living below our means, not being... I'm not saying if we have money, we're ashamed of our wealth, but using that wealth in radical ways to steward it to fulfill our purpose of cultivating culture. Uh, so are we hoarders? <clears throat> a lot of people who move from other countries who don't have as much who come here are amazed. I don't know if they think of the word hoarder, but we can tend to be that way. Ought we to look into our closets and our attics and our basements for all that God's given us that we're not stewarding well, that's just sitting there growing mold and rusting and not being used and figure out ways to to mobilize that stuff or at least get rid of it. And don't forget the kitchens and the garages and the, and the workshop. Slim down our bulging houses is a statement in contrast to just being uh, consumption or materialistic. And using that stuff or selling that stuff or whatever to benefit others, it's a lot of, it's a lot of work. Don't leave it for your kids. <laughs> it's not, not, a, not a fun job for your kids to have to just go and throw all that stuff away anyway. So do it for them now. Don't wait till death. But be known as people who give your stuff away. <laughs> when in doubt, give it away. When in doubt, give it. Okay? Crazy different. Crazy different in how we do business. Imagine if instead of us always arguing the merits of minimum wage, and is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? And I don't know the answer to that, but that Christians in business leadership particularly actually limit their own personal income in order to raise the salaries of their employees. And you have a little bit of a flatter business where the, the distance between the CEO and the workers is not a hundred times different. That's crazy different for an employee, I mean, a, a boss, a CEO to say, you know, I'm going to earn less so that I can pay my employees a dollar an hour more or, or whatever the case may be. There are people that do that. That would be crazy difference. That is not the American way. There's a widening separation between the rich and the wealthy that is in contrast to the biblical pattern of seeking to bless those who are without. Atlanta actually is one of the worst cities in, in, in the country for that separation between the wealthy and, and the poor. <clears throat> and that's not pleasing to God. 
not everyone's going to be equal, and I'm not advocating that, but there's always a sense, a pattern in Scripture. Those who have help those who don't have. And so there's a bit of a flattening. What if we approach business, we approach life, we approach money in that way? That'd be crazy different. How about... How can we make it a goal of our work to spread that total human flourishing out to the outer fringes, to those who are not enjoying the blessings of the American way? Or crazy different in how we approach safety. Okay, this is going to be a fun. Um, <clears throat> how does it look to be different in the area of personal safety? We value safety. And because we're a prosperous culture, safety is everywhere. If you've traveled in a third world country, you realize safety is a luxury of the, of the rich. Okay, but it should not be our highest priority as Christians. Or other, I'm not saying safety is nothing. But there are other values that are higher. But, so let me ask this, and, and I've done no poll here. Uh, <clears throat> this would really not go over well in the South. But what about the courage to not own a gun? What about the courage to put our lives in God's hands in order to avoid the possibility of accidentally killing someone else, which happens all the time because we're a gun culture? We have international friends who are scared that you live in the United States because there's so many guns here, and there's so much gun violence, so much violence here. Why do y'all do that? Safety. We want our safety. What if we trust our lives to God's control, valuing the lives of others above our own? Even bad people. There was a, a, a civil rights comedian by the name of Dick Gregory, and he was a friend of Martin Luther King. And one of the things he said before he died that he learned from Martin Luther King is that he said, we need to learn to prefer to be killed rather than to kill because those other people are in the image of God. Okay, that's crazy different. I better go on. I'm getting kind of hot. Um, <clears throat> Bible has some crazy things to say like, do not resist him, as him who is evil. Or crazy different how we honor our country. And so this will, this, I, I, I'll, I'll have to stop pretty quick. Um, can we reevaluate this American first movement? All right, I'm leaving right after this, John, I promise. <clears throat> um, can we rethink it? Is American first just a corporate form of Adam and Eve's me first attitude? Does Scripture value that way? What if, as Scripture suggested, one of the reasons God has so prospered America is so that we can prefer others before ourselves, Christian mandate, cultivate our world culture through our prosperity? Can we imagine, instead of an American first movement, perhaps an American serves movement? And I know it's complex how to serve other countries and, and, and serve poor people, and so I don't have easy answers there. But what if believers led an American serves movement? A great American value is I'm number one, but God is a we. And God values a we, and that we incorporates the whole world. And he wants us to emphasize us. And our original creation mandate flies in the face of us first or me first. Okay, I could go on. Um, and these are just some examples. And I know there's a diversity of opinions, even about some of these here. And, and some of these are, are, are perhaps my opinion. My bigger point is being willing to be crazy different in a kind way, in a gracious way, not in a fight-in-your-face type of way, but a way that people say they're different for a reason. 
They're different for a value. It's as if someone won the lottery, all of a sudden won the lottery, and then that person gave all that money away. The whole world would say, that is crazy, but there'd be something there that they would admire about it too. Let's be crazy in that way. Crazy different that can have an impact, but at the same time still engaged with the world because we're also citizens in the world. We're called to be home builders. We're called, Jeremiah 29, to build homes and plan to stay and plant gardens and eat the food they produce and work for the peace and prosperity of the community. So strangers and aliens were different, crazy different, but we're also home builders and citizens contributing, seeking to be part of building. And that circles right back around to that creation mandate, cultivate the culture, build the kingdom, reflect the kingdom. So we choose. We try to think critically. These areas, I can be totally like the world. I can engage. These are non-moral areas. These areas, moral, biblical, theological, I'm going to be crazy different over here in these areas of values. And I'm going to be laughed at, and that's okay. And I'm going to trust that for God, those whose God is pulling into his kingdom, those are going to be some of the doorways that they're going to be coming through, attracted by that crazy different, softly different, gently different, lovingly different, Home builders and yet strangers and aliens. Careful about what we talk to unbelievers about. Things that are core gospel values. But sometimes we end up disagreeing with non-Christians over secondary political things. Or conservative issues or some of those kinds of things. And then we lose our audience. We lose the opportunity to share the gospel because we're emphasizing the wrong differences. So if we're going to be different, let's make sure they're the fundamental values that go along with the kingdom and the gospel, and be different, and be truly different there, and allow the chips to fall where they may, as it were. That's what Jesus did. Jesus was loving, engaged, involved, had friends, and he was crazy different. <clears throat> so let me just finish with one, one example, and so this relates to our ministry. We live in this, this neighborhood. It's a poor neighborhood, and it's gentrifying. So gentrifying means that people with money are moving into the poor neighborhood, buying houses, fixing them up. It raises all the values of the houses, but it also raises the property taxes. Poor people have to move out, and renters have to move out, and welfare people have to move out, and the neighborhood changes, and it can be a rough process. And so one of the things we were concerned about, we have a lot of elderly in our neighborhood, a lot of elderly, primarily African-American, a lot of widows, people on limited income, they're the very ones that get driven out in this kind of process. They can't afford the property taxes anymore. This is very practical. They can't keep up their house because they're on Social Security. And so we started brainstorming, some Christians with some non-Christians in the neighborhood, too. How can we help them stay in this neighborhood if they want to stay? Is that an expression of the kingdom? And so we started a number of projects. We started making sure they had what's called a homestead exemption, which lowers their property taxes. We, we organized a couple of um, workshops called homeownership home protection workshops to help them become aware of resources that are out there for lower income to help fix up their house or to help them stay in their house. We get, we get cards in our mail all the time. I'll buy your house for cash. So helping these older folks understand... Your house is worth a lot of money now in this neighborhood. Don't sell it to some unscrupulous investor. Let's think about this. But also trying to re-engage them into community, 
Because many of them moved in years ago, and all the people that they grew up with and grew old with, they're all gone. They're dead. And all these new people, I don't know them anymore. And they're in their home, many of them very lonely and unengaged and no healthy relationships to minister to them. So how can we pull the neighborhood? And so we've started several several projects in, in, in the relational process to try to re-engage new neighbors with some of these older neighbors, build relationship, build community. Some of those are Christians, and so we feel like we're also building gospel lines, lines across. So it's a, it's a process to model and live the kingdom and allow these older people to be blessed by that. Many of them are Christians, actually, older African-Americans. But also, it's a, it's a process of enriching the rest of the community by bringing these older people back out into engagement. A couple of weeks ago, we had a luncheon for a lot of the older people, and we're trying to see ways of, of kind of pulling them back out of their houses. And we feel it's an expression of kingdom values. We hope and trust it will lead to actual opportunities to share the gospel as well because relational lines are being built in meaningful ways. But even in and of itself, we feel it's a service. We feel it's a, it's a gospel ministry in behavior, in our lifestyle. And it's different. Uh, a lot of the young people that move in, they're not all, they don't care a whole lot about the, the older people that are there. And, you know, they just assume they move on out so their house could be freed up and I can buy that house and fix it up. So it's a way of being softly different, of contributing, of engaging our culture, fulfilling that creation mandate of cultivating the earth, or in our case, cultivating a neighborhood and making it a healthy place with good relationships through which lines the gospel then can penetrate. <clears throat> That's just a little expression of what it means for us to be engaging our world. Let me just read a final quote to you that I think captures this whole idea by N.T. Wright where he says, the gospel of Jesus points us and indeed urges us to be at the leading edge of the whole culture, articulating in story and music and art and philosophy and education and poetry and politics and theology, articulating a worldview that will mount the historically rooted Christian talent challenge to both modernity and post-modernity, leading the way into the post postmodern world with joy and humor and gentleness and good judgment and true wisdom. And so we can only imagine a world like that. We can only imagine neighborhoods like that where we're seeking actively to cultivate, willing to be different in crazy ways, but in loving relationships at the same time, fulfilling the original mandate that God gave us. Let me close this in prayer. <clears throat> Father, we thank you that you... When you left us here, you didn't leave us without a message of what to do and why we're here. And we're not just biding our time till we get to heaven and we're free of all this mess. But you've left us here to engage, to love, to cultivate, to contribute to human flourishing. And Father, as we do that, to model and then speak the gospel as well because we want your glory to be known. We want people to, to taste it and then embrace it that they too might become your children and they too might, might enter into this purpose, this rich purpose that you've given us for as long as you have us on earth. Let us help us to glorify you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please rise with us as we sing our final song.